of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and beginning with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast, where we talk about how to teach the Catholic faith. By that, we don't just teach the Catholic faith, we talk about how you can teach it to other people in your lives, your friends, your family, your children, your parents or grandparents, um, even non-believers uh, that you may encounter. How to teach the Catholic faith. What is the Catholic faith and then how do we bring it off the eternal mountain down to this valley of tears where we all live, um, going, journeying through our life, leading others to heaven. Your hosts today are myself, Stacey Trisankos, and His Excellency Bishop Joseph Strickland, the founder of the St. Philip Institute. And we are so honored to have as our guest, Dr. Scott Hahn. Thank you so much for joining us today, Doctor. Oh, you're welcome, Stacey. It truly is an honor. Thank you for the invitation. We're very thrilled that you're here, and we're excited to talk to you about your new book, Hope to Die. I'm pretty sure everybody in our audience knows who you are, but just in case there's some new person out there that doesn't know who Dr. Scott Hahn is, he's the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at Franciscan University of Steubenville. He's the founder and president of the St. Paul Center, an apostolate dedicated to teaching Catholics to read scripture from the heart of the church. Dr. Hahn has been married to his lovely wife, Kimberly, for 40 years. They have six kids and 19 grandkids, and two of their sons are currently in priestly formation with the Diocese of Steubenville. The author and editor of over 40 popular and academic books, Dr. Hahn's works include the best-selling titles, Rome Sweet Home, The Lamb's Supper, and Hail Holy Queen. His most recent release is titled, Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body, which we're going to be discussing more today, especially in the light of this COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Hahn. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome, Stacy. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. So I think Bishop has a small question for you. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, really putting it in the context of this great book, Hope to Die, um, I certainly understand, from what I understand, you you kind of paused, uh, you weren't sure about the timing of this, and then then you decided to go ahead with publishing this book, and, and I've had a chance to read most of it, and I, I have to say it's very timely and very important, I think, for humanity at this time. Certainly um, for us as Catholics, 
But as we know, the church is a font of truth that really all people need to benefit from. I guess kind of connecting my original question with the book, I'd ask you to, as we begin to talk about the book, what would you say for me as a bishop here in Northeast Texas, for any bishop, what would you say is something that from this book that we really, as bishops, need to highlight and be aware of for the people that we serve, for the flock in whatever diocese, for me, here in Northeast Texas? Well, I would answer that by pointing first to the background of our own situation, because everyone is so aware of how suffering and death loom large for us all. And so in the background, we were sort of reminded of our own mortality rate, which is 100%. None of us are going to get out of here alive, even though most of us will not die from COVID-19. But the pandemic has served as a painful reminder of just how much we wish to not only avoid suffering and death, but avoid thinking about it, much less talking about it. And so it is brought back to the fore that which we probably should think about a little bit more than we do. But in the foreground, I would say for all Catholic Christians, clergy and laity, and especially our bishops as successors of the apostles, the single most important lesson is that there is life that is sacred and precious, and then there is life that is even more sacred because it is divine and supernatural. And as a consequence, we should recognize that, of course, there is death, and that is dreadful. But then there is also the loss of divine life, which is not less of a death, but far more. And so for us, as we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as we hear him proclaiming that he is the resurrection and the life, we do well go to go back to the beginning. In the book of Genesis, chapter 2, in the span of just 10 verses, I think we have something of a foundation laid. Beginning in verse seven, uh, in verse seven, in Genesis two verse seven, we hear about how our first father was was established, was created. He God took the uh, the dust from the ground and breathed into it, you know, his nostrils the breath of life. And so we have a material body that is formed from the dust of the ground, but the first breath that is breathed by the first man is not just oxygen like it was for all of the other animals. It is the breath of God. It is the spirit of God. And so when we read in Genesis 2, verse 7, that this is how man becomes a life-giving, that man becomes a living being. This is not just bios, the physical life that we share with the animals. This is zoe, as we see in the Greek, spiritual life that comes to us from God. And so 10 verses later, when God invites man to basically partake of the fruit of all of the trees, except for one, he attaches that warning, the day you eat that forbidden fruit, you will surely die. Well, why is that so significant? Because you turn the page, and in the next chapter, he tastes the forbidden fruit, he eats it with Eve, and they don't die in the sense they don't drop dead and lose their natural life in their physical bodies. And so was God just issuing an idle threat, or was he referring to the mystery of life that is not just human and natural, but divine and supernatural? And indeed, that is the key that unlocks the mystery, because when our first parents committed original sin, they committed spiritual suicide. They forfeited divine life, which is not like a death. It's not a metaphorical death. It's a far deeper death than if the serpent had bit them or if a bullet entered their brain. To lose divine life through mortal sin is a great tragedy, no less than to lose human life. 
And so when we hear in 1 John 5, 17 about how sin is mortal, it's the sin unto death. The same Greek term is used in 1 John 5, 17 as you find in Genesis 2, 17. So this mystery of life that comes to us in creation that is forfeited for us by our parents so that they transmit life that is human but utterly devoid of the divine. For us as Catholics, that's what original sin means. It isn't that we are born totally depraved, as I once believed as a Calvinist and a Presbyterian pastor, but we are born totally deprived of a life that is divine. So in baptism, we receive life that is supernatural, life that is divine. Paul describes that as a resurrection there in Romans 6. And once you realize that we are raised to new life that is divine and supernatural, you realize this is not a metaphorical resurrection. This is more of a resurrection for our souls than what Lazarus got for his body after four days because he just got natural life back to his physical body, whereas we get supernatural life back to our souls and our bodies. And this is not just temporal and earthly, but eternal and divine. And so, you know, we recognize how precious life is, but we've got to recognize how much more precious divine life is. But it's not only more valuable than human life, it's also more vulnerable. A bullet won't take it out, but giving consent to mortal sin will. And so just through the mere misuse of human freedom, we can end up in a tragedy, recapitulating our first parents' sin, which we contracted in original sin, but once we commit that through actual sin, we really unleash a, a horrible thing upon ourselves and others too. And so in some ways, I'm just kind of blowing off the dust from the sacred mysteries that have always been with us since the creed itself or the very beginning. But in another way, I think a lot of times we as Catholic Americans end up becoming, end up discovering that we're more American than Catholic, that we think in more natural or secular terms than we do in terms of the light of faith, the supernatural mysteries that are so sacred and precious to us. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. Um, and I love your distinction between bios and zoe, the, the two different kinds of life. And I mean, I think you're right. I think that one of the issues that we face in the church and just in general society in this COVID-19 is really highlighted. It We operate as if bios was the only kind of life there is. Um, the whole idea Amen. of the supernatural life that is eternal seems to have been sort of left out of the picture, even too often by the church. And to me, that's where all the, the you know sort of crazy, really, debates about whether churches can be open and receiving the Eucharist and all those things have, have kind of highlighted what I think your book really talks about so well and is so timely for calling us to realize that as we're all sitting here, I mean, you're miles away through electronics, but as we sit here as physical beings, there's so much more to our life. And I loved your discussion in your book about the resurrected Jesus and what his resurrected body is like and how we will one day share that resurrected body. Your book begins with uh, and the importance of the body and, you know, that's such a, a critical message where, you know, there's so many ironies. I, I'm sure all three of us see the ironies constantly. Here we live in a world that is so focused on the body, 
as far as the appearance of the body, losing weight and getting in shape and all of those things that we're constantly bombarded with. But then at the same time, we devalue that body and forget that it's a vessel of a supernatural life. And, and I think your, your book, as I, as I said, um, and I, I think an email that I sent to you, I really believe this is an, a message for all human beings to really reflect on. Even if you don't believe in the, the supernatural, there's, there's something there that the bios doesn't explain. And I think even right. scientists, I mean, Dr. Stacy is a scientist, and even the scientists will acknowledge their questions there about, we ask, what is the soul and what is that supernatural element? As you say so well, there in Genesis, it's the breath of God, which is more than oxygen and nitrogen and all the air we breathe. It's the breath of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think people generally have a love-hate relationship with the body, especially their own. As you just mentioned, we tend to overvalue and indulge it, and then we tend to devalue it, especially when it gains weight or it gets sick or grows old. God loves us, and he loves us body and soul, and he made us that way. And our redemption is not simply a salvaging from sin. It really is an adoption and a divinization. And it's not plan B. It was what God had in mind from the very beginning. Even if it's obscure to us, the fact is life that is human and natural is something essential to us, both body and soul. But life that is divine, supernatural, and eternal can be distinguished from the human, but only for the purpose of uniting it as God did or reuniting it as Christ did in his death and resurrection. I mean, in a certain sense, We've heard it all of our lives, but I don't think we've heard it too much. Rather, I think we've pondered it too little because when we blow off the dust of the 12 articles of the creed, I think what we discover is that these sacred mysteries are precious gems. I mean, far more valuable than just Catholic talking points or today's news and the headlines in the paper. And I think that's what the new evangelization affords, this opportunity for us as Catholics, not only to share the gospel with others, to reach them, but to discover that we need the grace of conversion on a daily basis, that every morning I wake up and I am them. I, I, God wants to reach sinners, and I am still one of them. And so the joy of the gospel is something that has been renewed over and again. And as a Catholic, our theology of conversion is so different, so much deeper than it was for me as an evangelical Protestant, for whom conversion is what happened when I was about 14, when I finally got my way out of juvenile court and Christ found me and all of that. No, conversion is something that is daily. It is lifelong. It is ongoing. And in this sense, the gospel is the deepest kind of therapy, not only for us to share with others, but for us to allow our Lord to share with us so that we can really hear the good news in a ways that are new and especially with regard to our body and our own mortality and what Christ has done in this Easter season for the purpose of leading us to Pentecost, where the gift of the Spirit is precisely given so that we can enter into a life that is not only out of this world, but deeply embedded within it, but something that is so much more than the merely human or natural. And that's why to me, I mean, this is not just like, oh, religious rhetoric from some overzealous convert. 
oh no, I think once we get to heaven and we get our resurrected bodies back, you know, if we were to replay this part of our conversation, we'd realize that Scott's words fell flat on their face. My words fall far short of the glory that awaits us. But as we contemplate what we have heard all of our lives, I think we're going to appreciate it much, much more and long to give it not only to our family members and friends, but for every person for whom Jesus bled and died and rose again. Absolutely. I really appreciate what you're saying and how you're advancing this conversation about the body and the soul because um, because my husband and I have seven children. And um, I, got, gonna, I, I think I say it in every episode because I'm trying to get my head around it. We're going to have four teenage daughters in the house in a few months. The, the youngest daughter will turn 13. And but this is something that they have asked me about because they've grown up Catholic. I'm a convert, but my, those children grew up Catholic. And I remember one day one of my daughters who was like 13 herself on the verge of becoming a young woman, she asked me while we were out weeding the garden, she just looked up at me and she said, Mom, if heaven's so great and we're going to have a resurrected body, shouldn't we hope to die? And it, that's my baby saying, should I hope to die? And it, it took my breath away because I, I didn't know what to say. I'm like, well, no, <laughs> no, you should not. <laughs> Uh, but but I, it was one of those times when I'm like, let me go get the catechism and figure out what to say to you. But I, I was struggling to find the words that you give us in this book. I was struggling to find, because I'm a chemist, and so it's very natural for me to talk about, well, when your body dies, it just becomes worm food. And, and I was struggling to find the words to talk to her about this life as a preparation for the next life, that you're journeying towards the next life and, and that the choices that you make are all preparing you to get to that point at the moment of death when you choose to be with God in all eternity. So the best I could come up with the time was God has a purpose for every day that you need to be here. And so you shouldn't hope too much to die soon, but um, it fell flat. So yeah, I love the conversation through all of these chapters that you have in your book, Dr. Hahn. Oh, thank you, Stacy. I'm reminded as you were speaking of my only daughter, I've got uh, one daughter and five sons, or as I say, one rose and five thorns. Now I'm grateful <laughs> for all this, you know, and our oldest, you know, who used to really struggle with hard questions when he was a teenager. Uh, he's now Dr. Han, the younger professor of scripture at the Mount, Mount St. Mary's Seminary. And I'm now really in awe of what our Lord has done in taking our son, my former student, and he's turned him into my tutor on many, many levels. But we were all together as a family on 9-11, and uh, it was then that my daughter asked me, are we going to die? And I said, most certainly, uh, but probably not today, which didn't help her as much as it confused <laughs> her. I had to go on to explain that, remember, the mortality rate is 100%. None of us are going to get out of here alive. But then I quickly reminded her of the immortality rate because that too is 100% on account of the fact that everybody who ever lived and then died still lives in one state or another, a state of grace that's destined for glory or a state of disgrace that is destined for gloom. And so everything we do matters for eternity. You know, And as we were reflecting upon the 3,000 plus lives that were lost on 9-11, you know, I gave her my best shot in terms of offering her comfort and consolation. She remembers it to this day. I was just talking to her a few weeks ago, and she said in the midst of this whole pandemic, I have never hungered for Holy Communion as much as I do now, Dad. 
And she said, I never thought I'd miss the mass this much either. And I'm like, girl, you have no idea how much you just blessed your dad. But you've also echoed, you've, you've echoed the sacred sentiments of millions of Catholic Christians who are waking up to what we have taken for granted for so long, most of our lives. But as we tucked our kids in the bed, I slipped out and I went down to the, uh, the Eucharistic chapel that night because it was really heavy on my heart. This is like the worst experience, the darkest day of my life. So I'm looking at the monstrance telling our Lord, this is the darkest day of my life. And then as I'm looking at the Eucharist, I'm realizing it certainly isn't the darkest day in all of history. I was reminded instantly of Good Friday. The greatest crime we ever committed was not flying planes into the Twin Towers. It was taking the beloved Son of God and maligning and uh, falsely accusing, torturing him and executing him. But it just struck me as I was contemplating the Eucharist that the single greatest crime we've ever committed against God just so happened to coincide with the single greatest blessing that God has ever poured out upon the human race. For while we were crucifying him, he was redeeming us. This is more than making lemonade when life gives you lemons. I mean, this is God doing the best when we do the worst. This is, you know, uh, his strength made perfect in our weakness. And he showed me that night what he's been showing us again and again. And that is when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We shouldn't sin so grace can abound. But when we see sin all around us and within us, we have no basis for despair. We really have a, a solid grounds for the assurance of hope that God and the medicine of his mercy can meet us right where we are in our brokenness and our woundedness. And he's not just willing to forgive us. He is dying on the cross to do so and longing for us just to give a kind of sincere, if weak, heartfelt consent, please, Lord, have mercy on us. And I think he's going to make up for lost time whenever he hears that humble plea from any of his sons and daughters. And 9-11, pandemic, Good Friday, whatever happens, God is not just writing straight with crooked lines, but bringing the single greatest blessings out of what seems to us to be the single darkest times. Well, Dr. Stacy and, and Dr. Han, the, the story you tell about your daughter, as Dr. Han was speaking about it as well, I think it's, it really touches on in important things that we need to reflect on, we need to be aware of. When it comes to sacred life and treating the body and, and all the things, what occurs to me is your should we hope to die? And the early church dealt with that. Some of the early Christians, there was an idea, and there were even actually um, schismatic groups that developed that. I mean, even before schismatic was really a thing, yeah. before in the very earliest days of the church, where people said, well, maybe we should just go right to heaven. Let's just m get Check on out. the path. Um, and the church had to deal with that early on. And I think it touches on what uh, the book speaks of in the earlier part, that there are two forms of life mm -hmm. in creation. The beautiful creation of the world is marvelous enough. I mean, you look at the intricacy of a flower or some of the, I mean, the vast number of animals that I can admit I've never even heard of, and you could discover new ones. They're discovering new animals all the time. Mm -hmm. The wonder of life and creation. But then, on top of that, the wonder of human life. Those of us created in the image of God and the, the sort of overlay of just tremendous, everlasting life 
that engages that. And we're both. We're part of that. I remember as a kid when they told us in early biology classes, we're animals. I was like, what? I'm an animal? Why do you mean we're animals? But we are animals. We are physical beings that have the properties. As we know, you know better than I, the DNA that we carry as humans, you tweak it a bit and we're a monkey or we're a caterpillar or you know i mean it doesn't take much to to change that dna and we're a different being human beings created in the image of god and and to me that's what we have to keep in mind in answering your daughter's question and answering humanity's question that we have a sacred life that that's the beauty of the church's teaching from conception from the very moment that new person comes into existence until natural death. And we need to understand very clearly that natural death is God's plan for that life. I mean, certainly a lot of people don't die naturally, we might say, because they're accidents, they're Mm -hmm. diseases, they're all sorts of things that intervene. But the spiritual journey that life is, God always allows his will to unfold even though, I mean, I don't claim to have all the answers. It's a mystery for how does someone who's lived a good life and, and is gone in an instant, yeah. in, a, in an accident of some kind, how does that work? Didn't God have a plan for this person? And we presume, absolutely. But God's ultimate plan is for us to share his life everlasting. That Dr. Stacy and I were talking about your book, Hope to Die, in the beautiful way it talks about our glorified bodies. I mean, I want to go and revisit that because that Thomistic teaching, honestly, I mean, there's a lot of Thomas that I don't know, but that Thomistic teaching I'd never read before. It never had been focused on. And as usual, St. Thomas Aquinas gives us such well-thought-out, basic truth that's so essential for the topic of your book to recognize and I've reflected a lot on it myself. The, the resurrected body of Christ was a physical body, somehow mysteriously, that could go through walls, that could eat breakfast, and then could float up into heaven, we presume float up. I love the ascension as, as a liturgical feast because the Gospels give us very little. Um, I just noted that Moses, God visits Moses in his journey God comes down through the cloud, and then his son, centuries later, goes up through the cloud. To me, that scriptures and the, the scripture writer's way of saying, they left, <laughs> they disappeared, they went to another life. We might say, you know, I'm a Trekkie in a lot of ways. I love all Star Wars, Star Trek. <laughs> we might say they entered a different dimension, but they they are all they are the lord of life father son and spirit so that whole mystery i think is something we really that's how we deal with your daughter's question yeah. no we don't hope to die we don't end our life we don't end someone else's life before god's plan mm-hmm. but we believe that every moment every day every moment of this life is part of that everlasting journey And what we do with it builds that path for us. And then if accidents happen, if unforeseen events, um, like in your book you speak of 
uh, September 11th, 2001, it, an impact for anyone who was old enough to know what was going on. It, it changed our lives. It's one of those moments in life that we remember where we were, what we were doing, how we were reacted later. And, and a big thought that I've had, many of those people that died in those Twin Towers literally vanished. They, they just... The, the explosion, the extreme heat of those fires, of those planes crashing, the buildings coming down, they didn't have any remains. Mm -hmm. They became probably even finer than dust. They, they just vaporized. And how does that work? You know, and you talk about it some in your book. I think the point is our bodies are sacred. Our lives are sacred. Any choices we make need to reflect that mm -hmm. sacred reality that we are. Stacy is a person in a body that will never be repeated. Joe is a person in a body never to be repeated. Scott is a person in a body never to be repeated. I know I'm saying too much probably, but I, I get a little carried away. <laughs> we had a, um, another conversation, uh, I guess last week or maybe earlier this week, and we were talking about the whole tragedy of abortion. And you probably are aware, Dr that we've been working to make sure the COVID-19 vaccine is ethically produced and does not use the bodies of unborn children as part of their DNA is in too many vaccines. And we were talking about, and we're going to work on this here in Tyler. If you want to join us there in the Diocese of Tyler, I want to work on making sure that parents know and actually put names on these vaccines that are XYRQ195F, you know, it's like, what's that mean? That's Charlie. Charlie's DNA is in this vaccine that was unethically produced. That's what we're talking about in your book, that these sacred bodies that maybe never got out of the womb, never got beyond, you know, very, being very tiny embryos, mm -hmm. but when that life is taken... We're taking the life of a person. And that sacred body, no matter how small, is sacred because God's plan was for that child to continue and have a journey through this life and be with him in everlasting life. That's the answer to yeah. your daughter and to humanity's questions about what does life mean? Mm. Beautiful. Yeah, the idea that we have bodies with sacred dignity and these bodies are an essential part of who we are as God made us is the reason why once we see that God the Creator and God the Redeemer are one and the same, if He can create us out of nothing, even if our bodies are incinerated at 9-11, God can also recreate us. And as it were, our bodies are not going to be facsimiles, but identical, transformed but with integrity. Mm. And when we look at the glory that awaits us in a resurrected body, I mean, words fail. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of what St. Paul says to the Philippians. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Mm -hmm. And that just changes the way we think about everything. Absolutely. Yeah. It makes me think of Another aspect of you could write another book. You probably, I'm sure you will write many more books, hopefully. But another book that would look at exactly what you've talked about with the body. I'm reminded of, of what's often called 
the work of St. Pope John Paul II, the theology of the body, but to, to turn it toward the whole mess of sexuality in our world today. Looking at that sacred body, then you begin to say, it's not just how you bury it, but how do you live in it? How do you treat other people's bodies, especially sexually, the most sacred aspect of we who are created in the image of God to a man and a woman being at that moment of another person being created? And how do we handle that? Uh, it, it To me, you know, I, far be it from me to tell you what your next book should be, but <laughs> I think it is that whole beautiful aspect of the importance of the body yeah. and the the reality of our sexuality and how that's so sacred and so broken. Someone, we were just talking with some of our seminarians this week, and one of them said they had seen something online that um, in New York, uh, poor New York, but in New York they um, said that there, there was some public announcement or whatever they saw somewhere that people were talking about well, how do you live out your, your free sexual life in this, you know, social distancing? And, and we kind of laughed about it. I was like, that's going to be interesting to say six feet apart and continue your, your free sex. I mean, I, I don't want to get too far into how they may have suggested you do that, but it, it just illustrates the broken reality that we deal with when people don't understand who we are in our bodies. You know, you make a good suggestion. I, I'm actually thinking about a book along those lines because my previous book was on marriage. It was entitled The First Society, The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order. And my thesis was simple, that uh, I was quoting a great Jesuit theologian I studied under my doctoral program at Marquette, Father Donald Keefe, who quipped one day in class, that with all this political tension, if Catholic couples simply lived the grace of the sacrament of matrimony for one generation, yep. the result would be a transformed culture, a Christian society. And then he said, but I digress. And so he went back to his <laughs> lecture notes, and I'm like, Let's keep digressing. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. has stuck with me for decades. I am convinced that was not exaggerated, that you know, this is the most authentic way to celebrate diversity all of the other identitarian politics that people come up with is a way of celebrating chaos and bringing greater disunity in families and society. And so what we as Catholics have to bring in the theology of the body and the notion of the covenant in scripture yep. and in the Eucharist, I mean, it's world changing, but it needs to begin with each and every one of us. That is life changing. As we yeah. have been saying, there is life, then there is life. And it's not just bios versus Zoe. But it's something that all of us are invited to. It's something that all of us were made for. And as we hear in the Catholic funeral mass, life is not ended, but changed. I almost always emphasize that. Yeah. I love that. And it'll be changed for better or for worse, depending on what we do with our bodies in this lifetime that seems so long. But once we enter the door of eternity, it will seem so brief. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, I capture a phrase that you used, these concepts that people came up with. I think that's so much our problem. We right. think we have to come up with it. God, what God came up with 
in the family, for the human body, for every aspect of everything is so beautiful. And we're in an age where we think we got to come up with, oh, we got to fix this. We got to come up with a way to take care of issues. Let's listen to God. <laughs> That's it. I mean, what God has done in giving us bodies is to bypass the whole higher education academic confusion. You know, they, as I went through my doctoral program, I realized that they privilege folks who come up with complicated conceptual abstractions, all kinds of terms. <laughs> Whereas God has carved into our bodies the language and the logic of love so that anybody who never graduated from high school can get it if they're patient and humble enough to listen to the truth that their body is declaring, I am made for another and we are made for God. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming here and talking oh, about your book. I think we could talk for hours and <laughs> we give could. you Go right Sorry, lots I of could. ideas for your next <laughs> book and the next book. <laughs> I, I know sometimes I wish that I didn't have to do anything but write, <laughs> you know, like there's things I have to say um, and get out. But uh, thank you so much, Dr. Hahn, for being here. It's it's an honor. It's a blessing. It's a, just a joy to talk to you about this book and a privilege. Um, we wrap up every episode with a one liner. We call it Into the Chariot. And what that means is St. Philip, the deacon, the evangelist. Is sitting. We have we have one of our paintings uh, that our our artist did. He's in the chariot with the Ethiopian, pointing and reading scripture. So we we always end our podcast episodes with the one liner to take away. Uh, and and I think what it is for this one is there's life, bios, and then there's life, Zoe. Um, and we kind of walk with our feet in both worlds every day. We're physical and we're spiritual. So. There's this life with a purpose. There's purpose leading to the next life. Amen. Um, could you tell us before we go, uh, I assume, I, like I can't imagine that anybody doesn't know who you are and where to find your books and your works. But <laughs> just in case there's a new person coming along here, could you tell our audience where to find out more about you and your books and the work you do every day? I'd be glad to, Stacy, And I want to thank you for being such a gracious hostess and also to Bishop Strickland for being such a good and faithful shepherd. If people are interested in following up on this book, getting it or looking at other resources, the organization, the apostolate that Kimberly and I founded almost 20 years ago is simply entitled the St. Paul Center. So go to stpaulcenter.com, stpaulcenter.com. And the St. Paul Center has been in existence now since about 2001. And we have, as our publishing arm, Emmaus Road Publishing, which is the publisher of this book, Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body, along with a number of other of my books and other books, Ralph Martin and a number of bishops as well. Hopefully, Lord, hear us one day, Bishop Strickland's book. <laughs> uh, but we have on our website countless resources for beginner, intermediate, and advanced our mission is simple, teaching Catholics to read the Bible from the heart of the church. Yeah. And that means imparting biblical literacy to Catholic lay people by showing them how saturated in Scripture the liturgy is, every part of the Bible, every period of salvation history. And when you learn to read the old and the new together, you're discovering how the new is concealed in the old and the old is revealed in, in the new, you'll see the fulfillment in every time the Eucharist is celebrated, every time we receive Holy Communion. 
and likewise biblical fluency for our clergy and teachers because as I might have mentioned, you know, we've got two sons in the seminary studying for the priesthood for the Steubenville Diocese, and my oldest son, Dr. Han the Younger, is a professor <laughs> of scripture at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg. And so we are so deeply invested in raising up a generation of not only biblically literate and fluent Catholics, but those brothers and sisters who are going to catch fire like Clopas and his companion. Did not our hearts burn within us? as Jesus opened up the scriptures, and then their eyes were opened in the breaking of the Eucharistic bread. For as long as I'm on this planet, I feel as though those are my marching orders. And what a privilege, what a joy it is. The St. Paul Center, so. Wonderful. Yeah, you're certainly, uh, when you get to that point of death, going to have a lot to look back on and and be satisfied with in your life. Um, thank yeah, you. Yeah, it occurs to me that St. Philip, and St. Paul knew each other, and, we, and we need to collaborate. The two different hey. St. Paul Center, the St. Philip Institute. It is um, written. From your lips to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> Great. God bless you. All right. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Bishop, could you give us a blessing, please? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Almighty God, we ask your blessing for Dr. Stacy, for Dr. Scott Hahn, for the efforts that both are involved in, in the center and the institute, for all the work that we are called to do for me as a bishop and all the bishops of the world, that we may rejoice in the truth that God has revealed to us, especially in his incarnate son, who is revelation incarnate, that we may continue to grow in faith, continue this journey of life joyfully and full of the Holy Spirit guiding us. May all of our endeavors be blessed by God's grace, and may his wisdom guide us to do the very best with all that he offers us. May the Blessed Virgin Mary constantly intercede for us and for our broken world. And we ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.